Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today we are going to focus on imitation. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. That'll work. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hello, Jill Mott. Why, hello. How's it going? I'm great, Emily Reese. How are you today? Good, thanks. What are we going to... What are we going to dive into? We have two open bottles here. We have two open bottles of wine today. Those are the best days. They are. You were, you said, I want to do a show on cannons. And I was like, that's going to require two bottles of wine. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even, as much as I thought I knew what a cannon was, I didn't know how in-depth it was. Mm-hmm. Although, I know we're not going to go too in-depth just in the interest of everyone's attention span yeah. and their, their, their breadth of knowledge. But to talk about cannons... Yeah. For two different reasons, requires two bottles of wine. Two bottles of wine. One, Cannons with two ends, not with three ends, by the way. And a, why we need two bottles of wine? Because we need to compare repetition and imitation, which mm-hmm. I know you're going to talk about. Yeah. And plus the topic just seems propitious enough to just tr- taste two bottles of wine. I love that. What do you want to start with? Well, I mean, I usually want to start with wine, but we haven't started with music for a while, so maybe we should start let's, with music. Let's start with music. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the canon. Please don't. So a little backstory. Yeah. It was like maybe the first time, and pardon me for whoever likes this tune. It was maybe the first time I ever called Emily Reese on the phone. Right for you know for the longest time we were like correspondence, text, and email, and I called and she said hello, and I said. Is it just me or does Pachelbel's canon suck? <laughs> and she was like, it sucks. And I was like, thanks, I'll talk to you later. Click. <laughs> so I just, to get yeah. you in the mood for canon. Yeah, we're not going to talk about Pachelbel's canon today. We're not. It, no, that's so but funny. repetitive, but to get you in the mood here. Uh, yeah, so a canon is, if you think about learning row, row, row your boat, where you start and then the other voice starts in after you and sings the same thing you sang, but after you. That's a canon. Let's sing one. Row, row, row your boat gently row, down row, the stream. Row your boat gently merrily, down merrily, the stream. Merrily, merrily, life merrily, is but merrily, a dream. Merrily, life is but a dream. So canons like that have been around for hundreds of years, and we're going to hear three of them today. We're going to hear one that's very clear, I think, from a string quartet that a composer in the classical era wrote. His name was Joseph Haydn. And so we can start with that one because it's very it's very straightforward, this one. Uh, everybody's in octaves. So in a string quartet, you have two violins, a viola, and a cello. In this, you're going to hear the two violins playing an octave apart and the viola and the cello are playing an octave apart. So like mid-C, mid-C, high-C, just for those of you yeah. that don't know what an octave is. Yeah, okay. same note, different range. Yep. yep. So, uh, so yeah, let's just hear this Haydn string quartet. This is the third movement from his string quartet that's nicknamed the fifths. This is from his Opus 76 set, just so you know. So this is late 1700s music from Josef Haydn, a canon that he wrote in his string quartet in D minor. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
Do you find that pretty easy to follow, that the lower Absolutely. voices are following exactly what the top voices and are really, doing? And really, really fun and really pretty. was such a good choice because not only is it very easy to follow for someone, but it also, you know, if you didn't know what a canon was, you wouldn't know that you're listening to a string quartet version of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Yeah, but exactly. It, you know, theoretically, not, <laughs> yeah. not exactly what we're listening to, but how it's composed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very simple concept. I mean, there's very strict imitation there, right? The The lower voices were playing exactly what the higher voices were playing almost to the exact note, right? A few changes happen at the ends of phrases, perhaps at a cadence, right? Uh, is what an end of a phrase would be called, a cadence. Um, so sometimes adjustments have to be made there so everybody stops at the same time or whatnot. But but it's a really uh, very straightforward concept. So Must parallel one in that way that, you know, we have... Well, first of all, I, I want to rewind. I wanted to ask is... How did canons get developed in a way that, because I listen to that and I think, okay, someone needed to figure out that doing that wouldn't, at a, in a certain, whether it's a certain meter, a certain key, would make it so it doesn't sound dissonant, like it doesn't sound bad, right? And is that yep. mathematical? Is that just genius? Someone figured that out? Or, I mean, maybe it's been happening since, you know, medieval or long before that. Yeah. Folk times. Yep. You bring up a really good point. Um and, I know. <laughs> and in the in the Haydn, it does seem pretty simple. We're going to hear some really complex. Uh, our next two are much more complex canon than or canons. Either way, uh, than what we just heard. the 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 thing you're asking though is how do they make it sound good, right? And they're because they're following rules. They're following the rules of counterpoint and what is acceptable and what's unacceptable. They're either ignoring or go you know fixing so um so it's it's i guess the the answer is it's both mathematical and musical genius with wine it's similar because you know you you think of when i'm listening to those measures however simple they are it's like wow that it, they are imitating one another in in effect they must sound good enough that the other say cello in this case the cello and viola are are flattered and they're repeating it right and and maybe with a well we'll get into more complex canons but yeah. when I think of wine it you can't replicate unless you're making chemical chemical like sprinkle sprinkle synthetic wine which is ninety nine percent of wine production when you're making a natural product um, an agricultural product and you know wine yeah um, that we're gonna drink later and taste you. There's really no way to exactly imitate one from the other because even if vines are seven rows away and the winemaker's harvesting on the same day and they're, you know, making the wine the same exact way, there's seven rows away, right? So those rows might be closer to the sun, you know, on a different kind of a downward slope. They might have, um, you know, have a different... You know, they might be slightly pruned differently, or or I should say thinned, shoots thin differently, right? Pruned yeah. differently, no, but um, shoots thin. So, 
And here, what we're going to present later um, are two examples of gamay that are one from California that is imitating one of their favorite places in France. They're making wine virtually the same way. We have the same vintage even in this case, 2015. And we're going to explore how different something can be just due to the, in this case, it is a big difference, right? It is regional. but yeah, halfway um, around the world. But, I mean, that's amazing. Same grape, same technique. They're and, trying and, to replicate everything as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. and inspired by. Like, yeah. they love to drink this. They think it's one of the world's most vivid wines. So then Neat. let's try to find some Gamay that's planted to the same soils and blah, blah, blah. We'll mm-hmm. all get into that. Gamay is the name of the varietal and the wine. Gamay is the name of the grape, yeah, not the name of the wine in this case. I mean, yes and no. Oh, okay. It says, says Gamay on it, um, but the yeah. name of the wine would be, um, you know, you would say in this case, so I'll just divulge. We're going to taste a 2015 Guy, it looks like Guy, Guy Breton, um, his Renier, which is a sub-region or a crew of the Beaujolais region in southern kind of eastern France. And we're going to compare that to a California Gamay that is from the Sierra Foothills. Um, the the subregion of the Sierra Foothills is called El Dorado. And in this is kind of just a, a cute little talking point that some folks know and some folks don't. When you look at Ren, when you see Renier on a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. and you work in wine, you just or or you are you know a aficionado of wines, you drink a lot of them or something, you know that Renier is Gamay, you don't need to say anything about it. Gotcha. And when you see this other wine um, that is a collaboration project between Arno Roberts and Rajat Parr um, in California, they write Gamay Noir on it because if you see RPM, you might not know what the heck it is. Unless you, you know, they only make one wine. Um, as a okay. collaboration, so if you but if you didn't know that, yeah. whereas like this could be a shitty or a great Renier, yeah. but yeah. you know it's Gamay. Cool. All so. right. Well, do we get to taste one of them? Or <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, of course. Let's do it. Let- so I chose this because in in the world of wine, I think there are lots of forms of flattery and imitation. So you know, we could we could talk about the plethora of producers that were inspired by Champagne. We'll, and we'll specifically say Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and the traditional method of making champagne and growing those grapes in California and making a wine with the same amount of time on the dead yeast cells, creating the second fermentation bottle and making California sparkling wine a la champenoise kind of thing, right? Yeah. We could talk about, there's so many other examples I could go through, but I won't because I'd be here too long. Let's get to stay succinct, Jill. Stay <laughs> succinct. So I chose these because... Gamay is a really transparent grape, and you can taste when it's been, you know, messed with. And it loves granite soils. And so the, really the only difference here is that, um, you know, this, there's a small percentage in the Guy Breton, which we'll taste first. I don't know why. We just will. Okay. Uh, that has a little bit of, of sand in the soils. But um, other than that, they are both coming from older vines they're both coming from you know a, a you know kind of a combination continental climate except for this the rpm has granite soils with a little bit of volcanic soils oh, okay um so if you don't mind what i think we should do 
let's taste both of them, a small amount of each. Yeah. Because we've talked about where they come from, and then I'll talk about the technique sure. after we get into some more music, if that's cool. That sounds great. All right. So let's Guy Breton. Guy Breton. So this is 2015 Renier. This is from a producer who really honestly was one of four gentlemen in the 80s who I won't say started natural wine because that's not true, but natural wine as we know it being commercially available for people, you know, starting with, you know, kind of the boom of the natural wine bars in France, Paris especially, that came about with these four gentlemen who learned technique and learned the importance of a lot of different things I'll talk about in a second from a guy, his name is Jules Chauvet, um, this amazing taster, chemist, who was very dogmatic in his approach to tasting and learning, who instilled in them that this is the way that you should make wine in a natural fashion. This is really dumbed down, right? But um, And so this is, this is very important because Guy Breton is one of the fathers of what we would consider today available commercial natural wine, even cool. though it's super small production. So, All right. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. I'm drinking Guy Breton on a Monday. <laughs> Me too. And this will get so much more interesting as it gets air, but that like perfumey, but then it's kind of schisty licorice like dark dark fruit dark yeah i love that in gamay with a little little age on it it's very bright which i like it's very happy bright flavor mm-hmm. and we'll we'll talk why mm. about why um in a moment gamay ages really well so okay. i just opened a 2013 from a really great producer in my cellar of a couple of weeks ago and it was like just getting started. So like some of these wines, you think, oh, Gamay Beaujolais, like tw- like it's already four years old uh, from good producers with a lot of acid. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of acid for sure. All right. You ready for the RPM? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's the RPM, same vintage, Gamay Noir from El Dorado. Oh, man, the color is so different. Yeah, the wow. color here is kind of more, a little bit more brickish. Yep. Versus being a little bit... A little bit purplier. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Purplier. Yep. Emily Reese said it. <laughs> you smell how similar they are? Yeah. And what's really cool is I would you'd be hard-pressed to say this is American because it's so well executed in this kind of European fashion. You can tell that little bit of like baked, baked fruit as opposed to like dark, fresh fruit. Okay. It's got... Like it's just been put in an oven for, you know, not the wine, but, yeah. the, but the fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's maybe, you know, there's a little bit more sunshine here. There's a little bit, it's a warmer place. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> if you were to blind taste me, the little bit less acidity yeah. on the RPM yes. is what would make me think California versus Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. But it's also not as tannic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about why in a second. And it's a bright flavor, but it's not quite as bright. Yeah, I'm not as acidic. Yeah. I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. And I will divulge why. Do you want to hear some cool-ass shit? Yep, <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right. Do I? So as Jill asked earlier, how do composers make these sound good? I mean, it's it's one thing to write a beautiful melody, but 
can every beautiful melody be turned into a canon? Of course not, because there's going to be notes that don't sound good together. And so there's crafting a melodic line that works well with itself mm-hmm. <laughs> offset is is a big challenge. And there were composers that, that did this in all kinds of ways. Um, because of that complexity, because of the fact that it's difficult to write a melodic line that sounds good in accompaniment with itself when it's offset, okay? It, that meant that composers could literally write a melody, just a one-line melody, let's just say eight measures long, which is the, a very common length of a musical phrase, eight measures long. They could hand that eight measures to another composer and say, figure out my canon. And they would be able to based off of how the melody was constructed, figure out then what the correct solution would be to make the other line of the canon appear. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's like a crossword puzzle. Exactly, and that's why they were called puzzle canons. And puzzle canons were, and still really are, I mean, you can find puzzle canons online that you can try to solve and you can see solutions for and stuff. So puzzle canons were a a big part of many composers' lives, especially in the Baroque and classical era. It was kind of a fun thing to do. We're not going to hear a puzzle canon, but I wanted you to know that those are a thing. Mm -hmm. Other things, now when we sang Row, Row, Row Your Boat, we sang, we started on the same note in the same register. I was going to try to harmonize, and then I was like, you know, <laughs> I don't think this is going to turn out. We should try, actually, because we can edit it out. Ready? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Row, row, row your boat gently row, down the stream. Row, your boat merrily, 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 life is but a dream. <laughs> so definitely not a canon, though, because you're not imitating my voice. So you would have to have imitated my contour oh. and oh. The, my interval jumps and yeah, of course. So I can't yeah. harmonize and then just go. No. Okay. Yep. Yeah, of course so, not. Yeah. So it's got to be the same, and that's why that math. That's where the math comes in, right? Because it's got to work out the consonants and the dissonance, the happy sounding intervals and the bad sounding intervals need to play nicely together. Yeah. All right. So one of the people who was really great at writing canons it may come as no surprise, was Johann Sebastian Bach. And Johann Sebastian Bach was so, so good at them. It was legendary during his life even that he was a master improviser and a master composer and that he could do these things on the fly and all this stuff. And just, you know, often he'd pepper these genius little curiosities of his into pieces of music, of course. And so in... Uh, one piece of his that's quite famous, known as the Goldberg Variations. Uh, the Goldberg Variations is, uh, when when you listen to that piece, the first thing you hear is what's called the aria, which is basically just the theme, the main melody. And then he presents a set of 30 variations upon that theme. And so the whole piece is pretty long. It's like 45 minutes or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's long. Every third variation, Bach writes a canon. But beyond that, he writes a canon at a different interval. So what that means is, like I was saying, when you and I sang Row, Row, Row Your Boat, we started on the same pitch. So we sang a canon at the unison. Mm -hmm. Now, when we listened to the Haydn piece and we heard all the instruments in octaves, canon at the octave, okay? But they're canon at the second, canon at the third, canon at the fourth. So what that means is when that second voice comes in, It's going to follow everything perfectly like it followed the first voice, but it's going to be that many steps away 
whatever the interval is. So okay. if it's a canon at the fourth, that means that second voice, if you started the first voice on a C, the second voice is coming in on an F. F. Yeah. Okay. So Bach did that every third variation. He So the first time he did it was canon at the unison. The second canon he wrote was a canon at the second, canon at the third, canon at the fourth, and he goes all the way through to the ninth. So he does a canon at the octave, and then he goes one step farther, canon at the ninth. So a voice that is an octave and a step away from the initial voice. You know, voice. what a dick. I'm I sorry. I say that it's so. <laughs> I say that with like all the love and endearment in the world, but yeah. like, really? Yeah. Do, do we just, do we, we can just do that? It's going to get even better. Okay. It's going to get even better. Two of them are at the inversion, so two of them are upside-down imitations, the fourth and the fifth. We're not going to hear those. We're going to hear uh, the very first one, the canon at the unison, uh, and you're going to hear just how complex these could get because it's not just the two voices, right? I mean, there's two voices happening doing the canon, but there's also a left hand that's happening in the piano. So it's doing its own thing. So not only is Bach making sure that the rules are followed in his canon, the, the two voices that are in canon with each other, he's also got an accompanying line in the bass that also has to match up with all that stuff. And it's it's amazing. So uh, now I've done this a couple of ways. What we could do, we can listen to the main line independent of where where it's nestled in the actual piece of music. Then we could hear the piece of music. Let's do that. So when I'm listening to a canon that I find a little more difficult to follow the whole line with... Um, for instance, what we're going to hear right now, this is um, the third variation in the Goldberg variations. I kind of listen to it in kind of two measure chunks. So the first line we're going to listen to, and then we're going to hear if we can hear the imitation right after that. So did you hear that in there? Yeah, I think if if I wasn't actively listening for it, though, I wouldn't hear it. No, of course not. Yeah, and I mean, it gets complex the farther the intervals get away from each other. It It's like, for me, it's almost like I'm listening for a contour thing more than I'm listening to the actual pitches. Yeah. It can be really tough. And I mean, that's the easiest one to hear. That's what blows my mind about it is that, well, and that's not entirely true. Some of their... One of the inverted canons is quite slow. Can we listen to it again? Yeah, it's, that's tough. Yep. And especially with the left hand doing its own thing. I, left hand's just like... How did this guy sleep at night? I, <laughs> Both of them, actually. Both Glenn Gould and... <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Okay, so here's another one of the canons that's in the Goldberg variations. And this one is at the sixth. So that means that wherever the first note starts, the second note comes in six notes away and still follows that same contour and the same shape of the line. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and when the second line comes in, it's going to sound like this. So they're shaped exactly the same. And you could play them together and they would sound good. Which, which you did. Which, and, <laughs> which is really cool because even though you said they don't line up they don't perfectly, line up perfectly, it gives people a really good idea. Yep. So, so this is what you'll hear for, listen for. And maybe we should listen to Glenn Gould do it, too. Let's listen to Glenn Gould do it. <laughs> Let's listen to Glenn Gould do it. That's so... Beautiful. I actually think that one is easier to hear it than the first one at the unison. Interesting. Like, I think maybe I'm just trying to get my head around for the purposes of this, like, analyzation is to try to, like, just rid the bass, the left hand for a yeah. moment. Yeah, um, And then it's it's fairly easy to, to follow. That's really, that's really cool. Thanks for doing that, putting those little pieces in there. Heck yeah. And getting to talk about some Goldberg variations, which I love. I know, and she, about. when you sent me the list of things that you were thinking of, I was like, there Emily goes with some Bach. <laughs> and then as I'm, I'm, as I'm like looking at her from the other side of our recording booth, as she talks about Bach, there's always this like her eyes <laughs> like really, like, I mean, I want to try to say how large they are. Open. <laughs> They're just like, ah, and like hands flailing everywhere. It's, <laughs> hands it's great. flailing. It's usually like when I talk about natural wine, which yeah. is, which is, you know, um, should, well, should we drink more of it? Yeah. When we talk about Cru Beaujolais and the, the gang of four of which um, Guy Breton was one of the, you know, forerunners of this of this kind of this movement of natural wine and having it have it be available for people. What was at the forefront of that movement was farming, of course, saying, okay, no pesticides, no herbicides. Let's have old vines and let's harvest late. And the reason that they said that was during that time and in the 80s, um, and still, still now, but um, it was rampant during those times. If you picked too early, you had enough acidity but you didn't have enough alcohol. And so what people would do is they would, it's called chaptalization, and they would add sugar in many different forms so that the yeasts had more food and they would produce more alcohol. It's a, it's a non-natural way of beefing your wine up in body. And the gang of four and Jules Chauvet said, listen, this is not, this is not a natural way of making of making wine. We're like having this fake body, this fake mouthfeel and, and, and alcohol level. So those were the, the main things happening in the like fields, getting things into the cellar, right? Getting grapes into the cellar. Then they said, listen, no inoculating your yeast. You can't add packeted yeast. Let's sort, let's take the healthiest grapes. Let's not leave rot and everything else. Um, that those, those 
you know, bad bunches and bad grapes could easily be covered up by a lot of makeup in the cellar, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then, so no chaptalization, and we're not going to fine, and we're not going to filter. One of the most important things was they said, listen, age in in older oak, and um, they said, let's use, employ something called, we've talked about it on the show before, carbonic maceration. So that intracellular fermentation that allows for, when you said, Wow, they! I noticed that the one um, the RPM is a little bit less acid. Mm-hmm. Granted, so in both of these cases, they have partial carbonic maceration. This area in the Sierra foothills is a little bit warmer than Renier and, and Beaujolais, but Im, they employ here as much carbonic maceration as possible, as far as I know, in the RPM. So what that does is it gives heightened aromas of, you know, floral notes, uh, et cetera. It kind of is like the salt and the baked good. I use that often. But um, but what it does is Gamay is a really ragey grape in terms of structure, really high acid, really high tannin. And what it does is it it gently lowers that a little, and it's a natural way to do so um, because you're you're anaerobically fermenting your wine. In this case, they're not 100% carbonic maceration, there is a presence of oxygen here for sure, but there is a large element of whole cluster fermentation within themselves, which will Neat. we call carbonic maceration. So um, let's let's taste the RPM and then go back to the Renier because I'd like to hear what you think, knowing that there is a a portion of carbonic maceration. They're done in old oak. Um, what you think of the the differences here? Um, it smells like uh, so different now that it's warmed up a little, or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like it smells a little like butterscotchy. So the RPM spends a little bit more time in wood. It's about a, a approximately a year, which you know you get that little touch of oxidation. The Renier spends anywhere from six to eight months, sometimes closer to a year. It really depends on the vintage. They're both pressed with a basket press, like a wooden press, um, as opposed to mm. like a pneumatic press that's that's a lot more modern. Um, okay. But hmm. really that's the, the only difference. Can you smell though that little bit of like, there's that little violet essence or yeah. something, even on the RPM, even though it's a little bit more of this kind of old oak roasted fruit, it yeah. does have, still have that kind of heightened mm-hmm. floral mm-hmm. essence. Yeah, yeah, it does. All right, let's Renye again. Yeah. Because I'll be curious what you think of this now that it's opening up. And plus what, um, if you have a preference, I'd be like to know that too. Yeah, they smell much different to me now than they did initially, but. And that, that, that little earthy, it's, it's like wet rocks and earth. Beaujolais, yeah. mm. all day, they rhyme for a reason. Mm. Yeah, I do like the Renye a little better. Yeah. It's kind of got almost this like confectionery sugar <laughs> kind of kick to it at the end, which is really nice. Do you mean like a ripeness? Yeah, I think so. That yeah, kind it's of got envelops. A bump of yeah, like not sugar, but like it feels like that on the palate, even mm-hmm. though it's not sugary yeah, sweet. Yeah. Yes, correct. Gotcha. Yes, she's very particular, understandably, about the use of that a- adjective. They're both gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The Renya has a little more tannin. Yeah, it it feels a little more of a, it's got a little more body to it to me. Were you going to say peppery? No. Oh, okay. But it's a little fuller to me than than, um, the RPM, which is also, again, delicious. They're both really delicious, but the Renier, I think, has a a little little more heft. 
You are it. right. It has uh, with the with the Renier here, the Guy Breton is thirteen point five percent alcohol, and the Gamay from El Dorado, the RPM is twelve point eight percent alcohol. Well, there you go. I you know are my just, alcohol. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> I really don't, but yeah. I think that you know they're probably harvesting earlier too to retain some some freshness in the RPM. Yep. Yeah. Because if they harvested at the same time as as let's say at the same amount of bricks, which is a measurable kind of sugar level. Yeah. They the acidity I imagine would go interesting. Would be okay. less. Or okay. excuse me, the acid would be less. Yeah. Um, but okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think they're both really pretty. I I don't I don't think I have a favorite. I mean they're both the same price. Um they have a right around thirty two dollars. If you're gonna gift me a bottle, oh shoot. I'd you I'd, love them both. You wouldn't even you seriously. I mean the Guy Breton, the smell, I wanna smell it longer. But I love them. Uh I love them both. And I've I've visited Arnold Roberts before and they're they're both just such great people and they were really uh, on the forefront of natural um kind of natural California long before it was uh, accepted and cool and kitschy. So nice. Hats off. Cool. Where are we going from here? We have time for one more. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course we do. We do. If We're not, a, we would make time. That's right, because this is a good one. They're all good ones. Mm-hmm. I usually don't lead you astray. I have before, but not this time, hopefully. We're going to listen to a canon by Johannes Brahms, who's another favorite of mine that I don't talk about too much on the show, but uh, snuck him in here today. He wrote a piece for female chorus, uh, simply called 13 Canons. And it's interesting because it's his Opus 113. We're going to listen to, oh, shoot, which one is it? Is it the fourth canon? Number six. Oh, it's the sixth one. Okay. Opus 113. Yes, Opus 113. And this canon is called Solanga Schonheit Veerd Bestein. And it means something about beauty. As long as beauty beauty has been around. Captivate. Yeah, there you go. And it is beautiful, but this is a fun one because the canon is inverted. So. When you hear the second voice come in, it goes in the opposite direction as the first voice that came in. And I do have those written out, too. Do you want to hear those first? Or yes, do you want to please. Hear them? Let's, okay. hear, let's hear them first. Okay. Here's what the first voice sounds like. And here's what the second voice sounds like. Do you know when this was written during his 1833 to 97 lifetime? Yes, this was written in 1891. Okay. Yeah. All right, here we go. Johannes Brahms from his 13 canons. This is canon number six. It's usually about where I get lost. Okay, come on, listen, <laughs> listen. I know. 
<laughs> See, this, people would appreciate this kind of stuff so much more if they knew that. Well, I know. I mean, well, that's I mean, why it's we're called here. 13 Canons. So people who Hold hear on. the piece know Hold they're on. canons. It's called Scores and Pours. <laughs> we're <laughs> enlightening the people. Come on. <laughs> but I mean, I think a lot of a lot of people that listen to classical music, you know, maybe not, I don't want to even say on the regular, but like, I don't know. That's something I'm sure that people that listen to classical music that know what canons are could, I suspect they could find that in there. But you might listen to, you might hear that come on the radio and you might be like, and go to the jazz station or go to the, the station or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if you knew, if you knew what was happening. Yeah. Like we're explaining it and like you're showing people. Yeah. Yeah, there are going to be times, I mean, there are so many times where I'll hear canon and not know I'm hearing a canon, you know, especially if it's a retrograde inversion kind of thing. And there are, so this is an inversion canon where it's upside down. There are retrograde canons. They're also called crab canons, uh, where the the line goes backwards and they meet at the end, the beginning and the end. Does that make sense? <laughs> Well, so, like the yeah. end, begin, middle, and what would you say? Yeah. That's yeah. so awesome. Um, can we listen to that one more time? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, this, this is just a really perfect example of composers kind of showing off in some way. Uh-huh. Because, because the thing of it is, it is very difficult to write a beautiful melody that works in that way. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a exercise of the mind. If it would, if it makes more sense for people, and I, you know, always feel free to send us comments via Instagram um, because it's probably the easiest way to communicate with Emily and/or myself, you know, with with um, positive or constructive criticism about the show. But I would, I would be curious if people would, you know, relate or would find that even more interesting when, like, you and I are looking at just, yeah. The, the movement of pitch, right? And yeah. so we're able to... And then when you're listening, you can see that. Yeah. If people would relate to it more or feel as much excitement if they could see it as right. opposed to just listening. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the the that all 13 canons are on YouTube, so you can watch the score, but I can post that link. Awesome. Because yeah. then you can see the... Whether you can read music or not, you can tell if a line's going up or down. Yeah. And you can kind of um, compare the contour there. Hmm. So Cool. Do you have any more thoughts or questions about Beaujolais oh. or mm. this Gamay or just imitation and wine in general? Because there are so many. I was going to go on the whole, like, the whole super Tuscans and trying to, which are wines made from Tuscany in a... You know, they're having local grapes like Sangiovese, but they're adding Cabernet and or Merlot or Cab okay. Franc or something, and they're making it in like a beastly style, like a like a California wine. Mm. And you get this like Calatal <laughs> slash Super Tuscan just meeting in the ring for, you know, points. And it's just, but they were trying to imitate one another, you know. Yeah. We want to have this these big wines based off Cab, and, and then you have... California producers wanting these like big wines based off of Sangiovese, and you're like, just what's, 
what's going on, guys? It's, you don't need to eat louders and better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though there are some good examples, of course, of both. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Do you have any questions on this frontier before we depart mm. the ring for the day? No. I mean, I, I, will you fill my glass? That's a question. I <laughs> always. Um, but yeah, no, I think they're they're both fascinating and they're both delicious in their own way. And I can tell how they, you know, are cut from the same cloth, as it were. It's good stuff. Always a pleasure. To scores Just, and pours. To scores and pours. For listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. <laughs> <laughs>